welcome to Made in India SLP podcast with your host Kinari and Rabab. In today's episode, we are back to hitting close to home. This week, we've decided to take a different route and we'll be discussing an audiology related topic. We know that a lot of our listeners are certified audiologists as well as speech language pathologists, often practicing both clinically. It is our honor to have Ms. Deepa Valame on our show today. and she's going to talk about cochlear implantation and its rehabilitation in the pediatric population. Kinnery, can you please introduce our speaker for our listeners? It is my absolute pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Ms. Deepa Vallame. She's doing distinguishing work in the field of audiology, especially in cochlear implantation rehabilitation. She is an assistant professor in audiology at Topiwala National Medical College, Mumbai. She is a published author in various national and international journals. Her area of interest lie in pediatric hearing evaluations, diagnostic adult hearing testing, and cochlear implant mapping, along with vestibular evaluation using VEMP, oral habilitation, tinnitus evaluation and management. Thank you very much for such a great introduction, Rabab and Kinnari. And I'm honored to be here with you today to share my experiences. And I would really like to congratulate you all in this fantastic endeavor of podcast which you have given. Thank you so much, ma'am. We are really happy to have you here today. So let's dive into this interesting topic of cochlear implantation and audiological rehabilitation, especially in the pediatric population. Why don't we take a moment and just talk about what a test battery approach would look like, especially for, let's say, maybe a child as young as eight months and somebody who's failed the newborn hearing screening twice. What would we do next? Yeah, uh, see, hearing testing in a young child, an eight-month-old child, is really challenging. And as you rightly said, it necessitates a test battery approach, which was given by Professor Jargor as early as in the 1970s. For an eight-month-old baby who is developmentally age-appropriate, uh, I would recommend a test battery approach, which has behavioral as well as electrophysiological measures. So the baby has failed hearing screening twice, and the first and foremost then I would like to begin is with a detailed parental interview where I would want the parents to observe the child's attentive and reflexive responses to different households and environmental sounds. Typically what we do is we ask the parents to make such observation at home, so like a behavioral observation audiometry at home, wherein I would give them a checklist with a variety of sounds, say like a cooker whistle, a doorbell, and so on. And I would also tell them what responses to observe, like whether the child is turning towards the source of sound, or his eye movements are searching the sound, or if the child is in light sleep, is the child waking up for sound. So such kind of responses, we would like them to actually observe every day for a week and mark the responses. And this will give us a lot of rich clinical information right at the onset, even before we begin testing. Next, armed with this rich information, I would do behavioral testing. Now, when you say that the child is eight months old, what I would really like to start with is the visual reinforcement audiometry or the VRE. 
because this can give us both your specific responses as well as frequency specific responses if i use pediatric inserts or if i use headphones for it of course sometimes if the child doesn't allow me to put the headphones being a very young child then we can begin with sound field vra but as early as possible i would like to get your specific responses now this was the behavioral testing part and we will always correlate it with objective testing or electrophysiological testing wherein the most important one will be abr autoacoustic emissions and emissions the abr uh, auditory brainstem response for that i really like the protocol which was recommended by dr hood because it gives us information about the degree of loss the type of loss and configuration so you know it will give us all the information that typically in an adult we would get from a pyoton audiogram and for the abr because it's a compound action potential from brain stem we can also get some idea about the integrity of the central auditory nervous system up to the level of brain stem now how do we begin we will always begin with a simple click abr Uh, as all of us know that click being a short stimulus it will give a beautiful uh, abr morphology and we can see wave 1 3 and 5 and because wave 5 is most robust we will use that wave 5 to track the threshold okay so we'll see what is the minimum level at which we can track wave 5 to understand the degree or severity of hearing loss now here i would like to tell you my observation that many times in a young child especially if it's a premature baby uh, with history of both asphyxia say in these babies wave five may not be very well formed and in those cases i would track the threshold using wave three if it is more robust now when we get this response what we must remember is that the response or the threshold which we get with this click abr is like a one point audiogram which means that it is giving me information only in the frequency range of 1k to 4k or somewhere between 2k to 4k but it is not giving me any information about the low frequency simply what we have to remember is that the click abr is giving us idea about hearing loss only in mid to high frequency therefore just doing a click abr which is very routinely done is not enough to fit the child with a hearing aid or to decide the management option for the child and therefore again dr hood's recommendation is what i like that you do a 500 hertz tone burst abr okay so this tone burst na is like a i'll say a compromise stimulus between a pure tone and a click okay so the click gives a very good morphology but it does not give me frequency specific information in the low frequencies the pure tone is extremely frequency specific but being so gradual in onset it cannot develop an abr which is a action potential so what do we do we use a compromise which is a tone burst which is longer than a click but much shorter than a pure tone and as a result of that if i use a 500 hertz tone burst it will give me idea about the child's hearing status in and around 500 hertz so i have nearly now with if i do a click abr and a tone burst abr we can have idea about the hearing status across the frequency range uh, there are other facilities also so some people instead of using the tone burst abr they prefer doing what we call as the assr or the auditory steady state response 
we can test both the ears and all the four frequencies that is 500 1k 2k 4k simultaneously uh, personally i prefer the tone burst because it is a bit faster and less likely contaminated by artifacts but different audiologists may have different preference uh, one thing though where i would definitely want to do the abr is supposing i have done click abr and i did not get any response even at highest level of intensity i did not get any response even for a 500 hertz tone burst so it looks like a profound hearing loss and i'm not getting any response anywhere with the abr i would definitely want to do the assr at that time because by the very nature of assr i can pack in a lot more intensity there and see this is very important in decision making because now if there is no response on abr for click and tone burst it can mean a profound hearing loss but it does not tell me whether it's a 90 db profound hearing loss or a 120 db no response like a dead ear right but assr there because i can pack in more intensity can tell me how much is the residual hearing even in a profound hearing loss and that information is extremely crucial for us to make decisions about which hearing device to use a step which we should not miss is knowing the type of hearing loss okay especially if it's a severe to profound loss whether it is mixed or whether it is sensory neural very very important to know and for that i will definitely recommend the use of bone conduction click abr unfortunately i don't know what you all have experienced but my experience is very few places do this bone conduction abr and uh, the question i am often asked is when to do the bc abr now i really find it very amusing because nobody asks this question in pterodactyl audiometry we always do the bc uh, isn't it bc testing yeah. yeah yeah we always do yeah but so my answer about bc abr is that you do it always the only time when i would not do a bc abr is when the ac abr is within normal limits so that we are assuming there that the bc abr would also be normal So I would really like to emphasize that, especially if there is a hearing loss, a severe to profound hearing loss on ACABR, maybe if it's a no response also on ACABR, please do the bone conduction ABR to ascertain whether it's uh, sensory neural hearing loss or whether there is a possibility of a mixed hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And then you know we can verify whether if we are suspecting a mixed hearing loss, we can verify this using tympanometry. Now you mentioned that the child was eight months old. for a 8 month old i would definitely prefer to use a high frequency probe tone tympanometry if it is available in the clinic because the middle ear mechanical properties in a child are different from that in an adult so we will get much more valid information if we use a high frequency probe tone like a 660 hertz or a 1000 hertz probe tone especially if i am going to be checking for acoustic reflexes okay now another reason why i would definitely insist on tympanometry is because this tympanometry information middle ear uh, status information i need if i have to validly interpret the autoacoustic emission now if there is a child not the child which you mentioned but supposing there is another child who has abr which is completely absent okay and in this child we want to rule out whether there is whether the absence of abr is because of a profound degree of hearing loss or whether it could be due to a neural pathology like auditory neuropathy spectrum disorder ansd which is quite a big thing today now yeah. to rule out ansd we need to see whether autoacoustic emissions are present or not and 
presence of OAE and absence of AVR, we know it's indicative of ANSD. But in order to validly interpret the OAE, our middle ear has to be intact, which means that we definitely cannot interpret our OAE unless we have done tympanic. What I'm trying to get on is that each of these tests is not a standalone test. In order to get a valid clinical diagnosis of the hearing loss, we need to make a correlation of the AVR, the OAE, the impedance, the behavioral testing, and put everything in perspective to understand the child's degree of hearing loss. So we need not use all the tests which we have with us. Each test we have to use only if it gives some additional information which will help us in managing the child in the most optimal. I uh, totally agree with you that we need a test battery approach, especially the one that is objective as well as subjective, so that we get all the information because just putting that diagnosis of hearing loss on a child as young as eight months old is such a big, big thing for the parents and it's going to change everyone's lives especially for the baby and everyone around. So that brings me to my next question. We know that one of the criteria for getting a cochlear implant is when the children and adults with severe or more hearing losses don't benefit from hearing aids. So when it comes to pediatrics, we know that children as young as 8 to 12 months are getting implanted. So in such a situation, what is the idle time period for the hearing aid trial look like before deciding and saying the hearing aids are not benefiting enough? Also, what is the role of an ASLP in determining the child is a possible candidate for a cochlear implant? Yes, to be honest with you, Kinnari, in my practice, the earliest implantation which we have worked with is around two years or so, uh, owing to financial constraints and many other constraints in our population. Okay, But yes, even in India today, the age of implantation has come down and therefore the hearing aid trial needs to be done really early. And when we mean early, it is as early as the diagnosis is made and the parents can be explained. And yes, therefore, one, uh, one question which we always are asked is that for how long should we wait for that benefit trial before uh, we make decision about implantation? Uh, three to six months is what our textbooks say and definitely at least three months is what I would recommend. And this benefit trial for a period of a few months, two to three months, uh, with a hearing aid is a must, I will say, irrespective of the degree of hearing loss also. See why I'm saying this is, uh, let's take two scenarios, okay? Now, supposing one scenario is if the child is having a, having some residual hearing, say the child has a moderately severe to severe hearing loss. Uh, now, in this case, we must have, we will definitely initially fit the child with optimum hearing aids. And we need some time to evaluate whether these hearing aids which we have fitted are providing access to audition and throughout the frequency range, whether the access to audition is present or not. Now, in a young child, this entails a lot of things, you know, it makes, it means we should be able to make well-fitting molds, we should be able to put the hearing aid on the baby for all waking hours, we must condition the child for a, a behavioral test such as the aided VRA, 
and apart from the functional gain which we are doing using vra of course real year insertion measurements wherever they are possible but i'll tell you honestly at least in the kind of setup that i'm seeing your real year measurements are not always available in every private practitioner's clinic that's a fact so apart from these objective measurements use of questionnaires like itmes uh, so in for infant toddlers you know itmes speech these are questionnaires which are based on parental observations after the child is fitting with hearing aid and administering these questionnaires at regular intervals post fitting of hearing aid is very very important and very helpful to the clinician like if i'm using the hearing aids and i'm giving auditory training to the child if i'm making good habilitation of the child for 3 months and i'm monitoring his progress using the questionnaire and yet if the child is falling short of the normative range then i know something is amiss and i need to look at another hearing device option so that is in a case where there is some residual hearing now many a times the question arises for children who are diagnosed to be profound hearing loss at birth okay now in such cases sometimes the parents become a little impatient and they question the need for that 2 to 3 month benefit trial with hearing aid but this period very very important one apart from the diagnostic use which i mentioned before this is the time when the baby learns to tolerate the device for all waking hours okay this may be easier said than done in some children this is the time when the parents also need to acquaint themselves to the hearing loss you know that the child has a permanent hearing loss what are its effects what is this journey going to be and what will be their role they need this time and this time can be effectively used to form very important parent clinician rapports where the clinician can then facilitate development of good parent child communicative patterns development of good such communicative patterns between the child and the parent are the foundations only on which later success uh, of intervention depends upon therefore these pre implant sessions even though we know that most probably this child is a candidate for implantation i would still take this pre implant time of some 2 to 3 months wherein all this work can be done so that parents can make optimum use of implantation once the child is implanted uh though another thing i would like to state in india see where majority of implants are funded by some government scheme such as adip scheme or sometimes with the state government schemes at that time i would as an audiologist want to be a little pragmatic about things so what happens is that this kind of procedures you know where we have to register for the implantation and wait for funding does take some time so the waiting period many times is 2 to 3 months or sometimes may go even up to 4 months so what i would suggest is if the child is having a profound hearing loss and if you are pretty sure that you may need to go in for a cochlear implantation later one can begin with the documentation process and the funding process right at the onset and the waiting period between that time can be used for benefit trial with hearing the challenge here you know is to convince parents to come for pre implant benefit trial because at that time they are so bogged down by the paperwork for the funding and documentation so what we have to counsel well is that the parents should also come for benefit trial and for pre implant sessions during that time that is what uh, really makes a lot of difference for our listeners walame ma'am was my professor at nair 
and I have observed her with so many cochlear implant cases and we've had the chance of seeing how much benefit it is to the patient to get therapy before implantation. So when they're implanted, they're so well prepared. It's not like you're starting from scratch. It is so important to build the parent and patient rapport before implantation. I think that makes a great difference in the kind of therapy and the readiness for the cochlear implant. Does that make sense, ma'am? Definitely, definitely. This explains how we are such a big team player from a clinical point of view. But when the child is undergoing surgery, do we play any role, especially when the implant is inserted? Oh, uh, yes, Rabab. See, in cochlear implantation, as an audiologist, we play a role before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery, okay? Now, before surgery, we just discussed diagnosing the loss, candidacy, evaluation, etc. There, one additional thing is also preparing the parents and child for surgery. Okay, so what I mean by preparing them prior to surgery is like helping the parents to set goals, to prepare them and child for the surgery, like which part will be inserted in the ear, where will be the incision. How long will the hospital stay be? How will the bandage look like and stuff like that? See, of course, most of the surgery related aspects will be explained to them by the surgeon. But uh, my observation is that because we have a lot of time spent with the parents, you know, during this entire process, which we spoke about before, we develop a very good rapport with the parents. And therefore, you know, they can ask us the uh, smallest of doubts in their mind. And it goes a long way in preparing them for surgery before, uh, uh, before the surgery. Uh, during the surgery, uh, we are called for ECAP measurements. So... Uh, just after the electrode array is inserted and before the incision is closed, we have to carry out uh, ECAP measurements, which we all know are electrically evoked compound action potentials. They are called by different patented names by different companies, like Cochlear will call it as the NRT, Neural Response Telemetry, and Advanced Bionics will call it NRI and things, but they are all essentially nothing but ECAPs or electrically evoked compound action potentials which means that that is the response from the auditory nerve in response to electrical stimulation, keeping it very simple. So what we do here is the biphasic pulses, which we present to the implant, to the electrode array, uh, are sent. And as a result of that electrical stimulation, the response from the neural fibers is again picked up and sent back to us, and we record that response. So it's a very quick automatic procedure which helps us to determine whether the electrodes are inserted and whether they are functioning appropriately. Okay. Now, most uh, of the devices today use an auto NRT or auto uh, mode, wherein we it's just a press of a button and we get the information that we need. But if we do not get such a response, a neural response with default settings, we have the option to go to an advanced NRT setting where you know we can vary the parameters of the electrical pulse to ensure that when we give electrical stimulation to the ear is the neural response being obtained or not that information we can uh, get now typically this ECAP looks uh, it's a negative trough for N1 peak followed by a positive P1 peak and what is the use of this information is that that in a young child especially who cannot tell me at 
the onset, whether I heard a sound or not after implantation, right? Whereas these ECAP measurements can help me to set the map or to put the program in the cochlear implant uh, when we begin uh, the, the device or when we switch on the device. Uh, one word of caution, very, very important to know is that it does not mean if I get an NRT, it does not necessarily mean that the, the insertion is proper and that everything is okay. Okay, so we have seen uh, both scenarios, wherein in one scenario where the uh, we got an ECAP, however, the insertion was not okay. And we have also seen that we are not getting an ECAP and yet later on the child did have a good percept of sound. What I'm trying to say is that it's not the sole measure which can help the surgeon to know whether the insertion was appropriate or not. And therefore, today what is done and what is recommended is that not only the ECAP measurement, but also the X-ray. So a CRM X-ray is also done intraoperatively. And looking at the X-ray as well as the ECAP measurements, the surgeon can understand uh, whether the insertion was appropriate or not. So that is our role I can say during surgery. Ma'am, that brings me to a follow-up question then. Now that the child has undergone the surgery, so what does it mean when they say the child is now ready for an activation? So what are we looking for or what are we supposed to look for when we are fine-tuning and setting up the maps? See, Kinnari, uh, during surgery, the electrode is now inserted, right? However, the child has not started listening. And this is what you always have to explain to the parents that the next day after surgery, the child is not going to start hearing. That's because we have only fitted the internal component, but we have not activated the external device, which is the processor, which is like the brain of the implant. Now, usually we wait here in India, we wait for three weeks at least for the wound to heal, the incision wound to heal before we switch on. Okay, but I know that there are centers like Mayo Clinic uh, where, you know, they switch on within a week after surgery, but we definitely wait here for at least two to three weeks. Now, what is this switch on? So that's a big day for the family because it's going to be the child's first experience with the sound. We are going to start the implant. That's the switch on. And I feel that we as audiologists have a role to prepare the parents for this day. The parents are very excited and they are impatient. So we need to explain to them what to expect on the day of switch on and what not to expect. Usually the way I do is I call the patient, the parents especially one day before uh, the switch on is done for demonstration of the kit. So there are a lot of things which we have to explain about the, the entire external components, the parts, how, how they function, how they are charged, how to attach them and the care and maintenance. And this really can be mind boggling initially for the parents. So typically I will call them without a child. If they can keep the child with someone, I'll typically call only the parents for the demo, wherein I'll help them to actually handle the different components, to manipulate them, to get the hang of the device, okay? How to charge the device. And so that when they come the next day for the switch on with the child, you know, they are not afraid of handling the device, the external components of the device. Uh, another thing which we will tell the parent is that see, this is the child's first experience with sound and it necessarily should be a pleasant one. And therefore we go very conservative. The children, we should go very conservative is what I truly believe in that it is okay if initially we don't give 
a loud, uh, a loud sound. Initially, it's okay if the child can just detect the presence of sound because that's what they are going to do on the first day when we switch on. They are not immediately going to understand what we are saying and this needs to be told to the parent. Let's see, today the child will be first hearing the sound. He will just detect. That too, he will detect only moderately loud and loud sounds. But listening is not just that. Listening is a learned task. It will take time and a lot of therapy for the child to learn to listen to sounds. And that's not what will be happening on the switch on day. It will be a journey which will just begin on that day. And the final product of that journey will be that listening will be integral to your child's personality. So on the day of the switch on, we give the child the first map. So what is this map? This map is nothing but a program. Just like how we put program in a hearing aid. Similarly, this is a program which we put in the processor, which is like the brain of the implant. And we set the parameter of the biphasic electric pulses which we are giving to the child. So we know that the electrode array is inserted and that array will stimulate the auditory nerve with electrical pulses. Now, how much should be the pulse? What should be its voltage? How many times it should be given per second? What should be its duration? All these parameters are what we said and that is called a map. So ideally a good map will help the child because it will make soft sounds audible, moderately sounds comfortable and loud sounds tolerable. This is what we have to aim for. What it actually means is that we have to fit the child's dynamic range the auditory dynamic range into the child's electrical dynamic range so we set what are known as p levels or threshold levels and c levels which are comfort levels so it is between these two current levels that all the sounds will be mapped on and the child will be able to hear now all this kind of a fine tuning of the map takes some time so initially we will set the map based on the ECAP measurements because a very young child may not be able to behaviorally give a response as to what is loud and what is soft. But very early on in therapy, we train the child to give a behavioral response. So generally within first four months, I will like to see that the child is giving a behavioral map, which what I mean by behavioral map is the child can give a response, a verbal or a nonverbal one, wherein he can tell us his own settings for the map. So initially when we do mapping, the map is not stable and we may need to fine tune or make adjustments initially at a weekly level, then at a monthly level till we get a stable behavioral map. Once a stable behavioral map is obtained, then generally I do mapping once in three to four months. So that is how the process goes on. So ma'am, I find it really interesting that you said that the child needs to learn to listen and that they'll detect only moderately loud sounds at the beginning. So that brings me to the most important questions that ASLPs play such an important role in oral habilitation. It's not like you put a cochlear implant and next day they're listening everything, right? It's a long journey yes. from implantation to listening during everyday life. So are there any specific therapy approaches or treatment protocols that you advocate for? Mm, yes, indeed. You very rightly said that we have a role not only in mapping, but definitely mm -hmm. in the habilitation program. 
now uh, see in very young children like how you said an eighth month old who is implanted early say by one year and there definitely in early implantation the habilitation approach of choice is what today is spoken about a lot which is the avt or the auditory verbal therapy but to be a candidate for avt we must be assured of certain things you know there are some prerequisites such as the child must have complete access to audition see irrespective of whether he is getting that access due to implantation or he is getting that with a hearing aid or any other device but the child must have complete access to audition that means the child's aided hearing status should be at the upper border of the speech spectrum the child should be able to have access to all sounds in the frequency spectrum intervention should begin early by early i mean definitely before 2 and 1/2 or 3 years of life and parents must be willing to be the primary therapist you know these are certain things if these are available or if these are possible then abt or auditory verbal therapy is definitely recommended because it develops language through audition so that is what normal hearing kids do isn't it we all develop how have we developed our language it is through audition even our reading and writing skills which develop later are all based on hearing and speaking so that's what if that is what hearing children do any parent would definitely like their hearing impaired child also to develop in the same pattern so whenever possible definitely it's a good option apart from that it's a unisensory approach it uh, does not uh, or rather i would say it prohibits the use of any other sensory modality and develops language only through audition aims to develop verbal language of good speech and it empowers parents really to a large extent because they are the main facilitators in avt and it its aim is to you know integrate hearing into the child's being so hearing is not something that is different it is a part of the child's personality and they learn to develop to read write attend school mainstream education just like the hearing child does and that's fascinating about avt Uh, i would definitely like to emphasize that carrying out avt which is a specialized technique needs dedicated training for the therapist and whether that person is an aslp or that person is an educator for hearing impaired person that person must keep updated and must have specific training in avt if that person has to conduct avt sessions that i will definitely want to emphasize another point especially in the kind of the setting that i am working in i do not have the privilege of always working with kids who are intervened so early okay and uh, if the kids are not intervened before 2 and 1/2 years or if they have other comorbidities supposing the child has a very thin nerve in such cases you know we cannot insist that the child will be able to develop to his full potential only by using audition and in that case avt may not be the option that we would want uh, does this mean that these children cannot be given any auditory uh, habilitation or oral habilitation at all no we can but along with the auditory modality maybe we may also need to work on the visual cues or we may need oral oral training auditory visual training uh, instead of the avt so in oral oral approach wherein we use auditory training rather than avt uh, again we are helping the child to make full use of audition but there are some differences so 
So in AVT, what happens is that we use hearing to develop language, just like normal hearing children do. Whereas in auditory training, what happens is that the child may have developed language through other modalities, say through signs or through lip reading. And what we focus on is to develop listening through these modalities through the use of other modalities. So both will use techniques like acoustic highlighting, pausing, modeling, and we will take the child to the same auditory hierarchies. See whether I'm using AVT or whether I'm using oral oral approach. My uh, auditory hierarchies will be the same. I will work from detection to discrimination of sounds, to identification of sounds, to auditory memory, to auditory sequencing, to the last, which is auditory comprehension, wherein the child understands the meaning of sounds. So the hierarchy will remain the same, but the way in which I will carry out the sessions might be different. Like AVT uses a very natural uh, kind of a situation. It is entirely activity-based, and because it is done in very young children, uh, it's absolutely in a natural setting. Whereas a more structured teaching format may be used in auditory training. Both need a lot of planning, setting of goals, monitoring the progress, documentation. So what I feel is, as a clinician, my role is to understand very clearly, not that which is superior approach. That's not the point. The point is to know for which child, which approach I have to choose and to work accordingly. So I am a big believer of epileptic approach. Uh, it's not about what I like or what I believe, but it is about what the child needs. Based on that, we have to select the approach. I really like how you uh, mentioned that it's not about what I like or what I prefer doing. It's about putting the child first, seeing what they need, and making sure that the parents are always involved in the therapy because parents play such an important role in the child's lives, especially as a care partner. So having them on the team is so very important. So I was thinking uh, for a parent, there is this whole another side, which is the emotional side. There are so many emotions going through them. There is shock, there is grief, and there is acceptance of the disability. It is one of our jobs as a professional to provide appropriate guidance and counseling. As an experienced clinician, do you have specific tips or tools that you have noted are effective to help navigate the families? See, it's definitely a challenge and emotional turmoil for the parents. And what I feel is developing a good rapport with the parents and making them, empowering them to become the primary team member is very essential if we want successful outcome. And this is not going to happen in a day. So we should communicate with the parent right from the time of diagnostic testing. That is the time when we start building up bridges with the parent keeping them informed at every step, asking their choices. See, at the end of the day, the child is theirs. Okay, so asking them for their choices. What are their expectations? Knowing all of that, more often than not, you know, the audiologist then can form a good rapport with the parents by the time they have come for switch on. And if this has already happened, if most of our job is like done and the journey ahead becomes smooth, 
See, I always tell parents that surgery and mapping are fifty percent of the work. Together, milky, it is fifty percent of the work because it will only ensure that the sound is reaching the child's ears. But we do not hear with our ears. Now we hear with our brains. Comprehension of language is what is important, and for that, audition is just a window which we use to stimulate language development. Now I really love one sentence by an author, Wendy Lyonas. who says that language cannot be taught through teaching it is taught through experience it's so true how do we teach language language is not taught it is learned or it is taught by the child in daily experiences the child should be bathed by sounds by natural living language and who can do that better than parents we will be seeing the child in a contrived situation clinical situation for an hour or more it's if the hearing has to be integrated in the personality of the child then the primary clinicians have to be the parents and parents can do that and they can enjoy being a part of this journey only if they are with us in every stage now remember they have to progress through the natural steps of grief anger helplessness to acceptance and finally motivation there are no shortcuts here they have to progress through all these things and then gently we have to motivate them and you know uh, each family is unique they have their own unique challenges and many over years i have realized that these challenges are very different from what you and i study in textbooks their life challenges are very very different and hearing is only one part of their child's life and overall the child's well being is what we all parents are more interested in that the happiness so what is what should be the ultimate long term goal of whatever we are doing is happiness and productive which being the child making the child productive citizens if we want all of that we have to help the family progress at their own pace accepting their own unique challenges and we must be empathetic towards them so uh, tips you were saying i simply feel developing a good rapport keeping communication channels open empowering them in therapy so giving them charge to be primary clinicians very early on in therapy giving them that confidence are the key another important thing is uh, encouraging them to meet other parents because the support which they can get from other parents who have successfully habilitated their children that's something what you and i cannot give we can facilitate uh, support groups of such parents and that will also go along you know we hear with our brains and we must use audition as a window to stimulate language development that's so well said it is remarkable to see how far technology is evolving and how young implantees are doing it's great to see that children who are getting rehabilitated or habilitated at a younger age are picking up more than one language which they are learning to listen and to talk anything you would like to share with fellow clinicians or student clinicians especially regarding your research findings and latest research trends so that professionals who are providing audiological services can provide better results through their treatment approaches uh yes see a lot of good work is happening today in india the main challenge i feel is to get the age of identification down what uh, the joint committee states the 136 rule like 
detection of your identifying hearing loss at one month, diagnosis by three months, and intervention by six months. It's a dream in many parts of the country. Although a lot of efforts are underway, there are some pockets or some states where the age of implantation is really gone down. Like uh, in Tamil Nadu, in Kerala, a lot of good work is being done. But overall, if you see, especially in the remote areas, uh, the age of identification still definitely is one of the major challenges. And making united efforts for newborn hearing screening is the need of the hour. Another thing is there is also a lot of gap. There is a gap between the age of identification and age of intervention. Now there could be multitude of factors which have uh, which are due to social constraints, financial constraints, whatever. But there is a gap between age of identification and age of intervention. Now studying what are the factors which are affecting and how can this gap be reduced? That is another very very important thing to see. Now, this time, the pandemic situation has really made the problem multifold and has definitely affected the newborn hearing screening services side. You were asking about research area, interesting area of research, which I would say which is going on and which is very exciting is uh, to see the use of aided cortical potentials in uh, decision-making in cochlear implantation. So, there's a lot of study of using the uh, aided cortical potentials, the P1 peak in LLR. People are using it a lot as an objective biomarker to see whether there is benefit from the hearing device or no. And that is being used by many laboratories to even make decisions about cochlear implantation. And this is very, very exciting because it gives an objective tool to make your decisions on uh, which is very, very crucial in a young child who can't verbally tell you uh, whether the benefit which is being given by the hearing aid is enough or not. So apart from using functional gain and other measures, it's very exciting to see that cortical evoke potentials are being used. To some extent, even P300 can be used because these are uh, higher order potentials which tell us not only that the sound has reached the ear, but they give us some kind of a satisfaction that yes, the sound has reached the cortex and the child can make use of that sound. It's very, very exciting to see a lot of research evolving in the use of, of aided cortical potentials in this area. And I really feel that uh, it's an exciting time for fellow clinicians. A lot of work is being done and can be done. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I feel that when a child speaks, after all this, when the child utters the first word, and when we see that happiness in the parents' eyes, it is worth all the efforts which they and we have taken together in this show. I do have a follow-up question and I just want to have your opinion on it. You say that we need to focus on the gap in the age of identification versus the age of intervention. As clinicians, how do we play our part in that? Would it just be a lot of you know, awareness about hearing loss and implantation. Is there something particular we can do? Definitely, if we are able to get across to the parents about the importance of uh, intervention, that is one thing. Secondly, developing good communication channels because a lot of times there's a lot of doctor shopping which goes on. So if we are not able to give enough time or uh, if the parents are not very happy or they have not yet accepted the diagnosis which we have made and if they are still going to run around to 10 places to confirm the diagnosis, sometimes time is lost in that. 
thirdly there are certain things which really i don't know whether uh, we can really make a difference there or not there are certain things like financial constraints like all said and done you know making arrangements for funds that itself does take some time and there is some uh, time loss even during the entire process of getting funding for the implantation that also sometimes can take time so there are multiple factors see some factors are not within our purview but some are uh, and early identification is one awareness i am not talking about big cities but i still come across a lot of places where parents are being told even by general practitioners that wait for some time and then the child may talk now when such kind of an advice comes from medical professionals it sometimes can be quite tricky and therefore the parents decides to wait and maybe the child can talk so those are some of the things which we need to work upon developing awareness thank you so much ms alame for being here today and sharing such good information with us yes thank you ma'am it's a privilege to have you on this podcast a big thanks to our listeners and we'll be back with another topic and another speaker so stay tuned to our social media for more thanks <laughs> for joining us today and we are so grateful for all the support we've received and can't wait to see where this podcast goes thank you see you soon